an Ironic Media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. All right, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you that I am now on Wisdom app. It is an app where we can connect and you can ask me questions and we can keep the conversation going about this week's episode. So please jump over to where you download apps on Apple or on Android and pick up the Wisdom app. It has Einstein with headphones on. Find me at Amy Stark, just Amy Stark. We can talk about the podcast and we can talk about anything that you're wondering about your journey. We can connect there. And I am so grateful that this app exists. So please come on over and let's get this conversation going. I can't wait to see you there. I came into prison with a lot of skills. I'd already been right. trained as a Buddhist teacher, a meditation teacher. I've been practicing intensely, very deeply for like 10 years, compartmentalizing in my life and not applying the teachings to a whole swath of my life, which is pretty sick headed and still a lot of addiction stuff going on and substance abuse. But nonetheless, I've been very sincerely practicing and I had a master's degree. I had a lot of training. And so when I got there and then became dedicated to turn my life around and live a life of service in some ways, a very painful place. And I have deep regrets over the impact of my son having not had his father around all that time. And and deep regrets around my involvement with drug dealing and the impact that had on people's lives. But apart from that, I have really no regrets around that experience because it became for me the place of transformation and an opportunity to really serve in an extraordinary way that I never would have been able to before. Welcome to the Stark Transformation Show. I'm your host, Amy Stark. This show, I'll be sharing messages of hope, healing, and transformation. I'll teach you how to shift your mindset, conquer your fears, and become the best version of you. You'll hear incredible stories of transformation and about the extraordinary journey I've been on for well over a decade. My connection with energy is so strong, and I can't wait to share it with you. Let's get started. All right, today on the podcast, I have Dr. Fleet Mall, and he is a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his trainings, programs, and seminars around the world, both in person and online through the HeartMath Institute. He is a meditation teacher, executive coach, a seminar leader, and a social entrepreneur who works in the intersection of personal and social transformation. He has founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and the National Prison Hospice Association. He is the Zen master in the international Zen peacemaker order and a senior Dharma teacher in the global Shambhala meditation community and authored Radical Responsibility, which I'm a huge fan of. And the full title is Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live in Higher Purpose and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good in the World. He is one of the most unlikely people to be a mindset and growth teacher because he actually served a prison sentence. And that is where you got started. So welcome to the show, Dr. Flea. I am very excited to talk to you. You have an extraordinary journey to share with us. And I'm sure that we will all be enlightened by your radical responsibility that you're sharing. Great. Thank you for having me. I just need to make one little correction in the bio. You, you said my organization, Heart Math Institute. That's not correct. That's Did a I whole other organization. Yes, a heart, mind. Heart, heart, heart Mind Institute. I, right? I apologize. I'm so used to saying Heart Math. So yes, yeah, Heart Mind Institute. Wonderful people. They do great work, but it's a completely different thing. Right. Totally. How did you end up in prison 
And then how did you go from prison to becoming this mindfulness and meditation coach? Yes. Well, I'll try to give you a thumbnail sketch of that. So, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I came of age in the 1950s and 60s. I graduated from high school in 1968, classic angry young man with a big hole in my gut that I was trying to fill up with anything I could. My early childhood, I remember things being kind of vivid and real and felt plugged in a lot of odd magic. And then probably around the time I started school, that all just went away. And I never mm-hmm. made peace with that. I was always hungry to find that way to feel like life is real and I'm plugged in. And it's like that quality of magic and awe. And I mean, I grew up in a basically good middle-class family in the Midwest, Roman Catholic and a good family, good values, but we had our issues. We had alcoholism in our family. And and so that turned everything upside down once or twice a week and mm. created a lot of splitting for me. And so uh, a lot of chaos and I had this big hole in my gut. So, you know, I just went headlong into the counterculture movement of that time, drug, sex, and rock and roll, all the experimentation, anti-war politics. I just went full on into all of that. Mm-hmm. A very confusing time. I mean, a lot of folks of my generation, we just kind of threw the rule book out, right? You know, just kind of <laughs> rejected everything from our, our parents' generation and which in retrospect wasn't so smart because they had a lot of experience and wisdom and good values, even though there was a lot going on that we found to be very hypocritical and was. But nonetheless, folks like me just out there trying to find our way with no rules. And of course, we made a lot of messes. Still, there was a lot, all kinds of social change came out of that period, right? Mostly all the liberation movements began there. And I mean, the civil rights movement preceded that, but but certainly women's rights and gay rights and and, you know, the whole GLBT community rights and computer revolution, it was all born out of that creativity of that period. I became so disillusioned with just what was going on. I mean, the whole kind of drug scene went from the this kind of peace and love psychedelic era into a more hard drug, darker shadow mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I wanted to escape from that. Also, politically, I mean, I, I just found things I, I felt so alienated from my own country and the political scene. I mean, when Richard Nixon was reelected to a second term, I, I just I just wanted to leave the country. And also, I always had some notion. I don't know where I got the idea that somehow I had this big thing about traveling to Peru. And somehow in Peru, I would find this kind of magic I was looking to rediscover. Along the way through my adolescence, I rediscovered some qualities of feeling plugged in, you know, with sex and alcohol and the music and drugs. And some of it has some reality to it, obviously, but also has this mirage-like quality. But especially if you got somebody like a a hole in your gut, like I had with the addictive propensities, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of baggage goes with all that, right? So at any rate, I took off, started traveling in Latin America. And eventually, it took me quite a while. I lived on a sailboat for almost a year, but eventually found my way to Peru and really did discover something there environmentally. And that it's a very incredibly powerful and magical place. And, you know, the the whole, the, the drug stuff receded into the background a little bit. It was still there, but that's not what my travels were all about. My travels were about adventure and exploring indigenous cultures and really fascinated with the archaeology and the ruins of, of all the countries we were visiting in and, and well, meeting other travelers, just expanding my mind to be, have a more international global consciousness and so forth. But eventually uh, I ran out of money and continued to live outside the system. And, and so far I, I fell into small time drug trafficking, mostly facilitating other people who were coming down there to smuggle drugs back to the U.S. and then later got involved in it myself. And I never really tried to get rich at it. I just would do it and make some money, be able to live outside the system for a while. I ran out of money, I'd go do it again, kind of thing like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I had to get out of it, but I was justifying it with all this us versus them thinking. Back then mm-hmm. I was locked into that, you know, the world is all hypocritical and evil. I actually felt justified even the, among the righteous by by being in this kind of outlaw lifestyle. Fortunately, I got over that a long time ago, but... <laughs> 
eventually, I was always a spiritual seeker at the same time. My family knew me as such, and I, I just always had that inclination. And so I kind of figured out I was a Buddhist when I was in high school. I, I had a good Catholic Jesuit education, good prep school. But it was actually my sophomore year in a comparative religion class was the first time I read some, some other religious texts, some Hindu texts, some Buddhist texts, some Taoist texts, uh, probably some uh, Islamic texts. And when I read the Buddhist text, it was the first thing that ever really made any sense to me. Maybe I was a Buddhist in my last lifetime. I think that's, if there is such a thing as multiple lifetimes, I think it's right. very likely that, yeah. that I was. But anyway, I mean, I just read it and it was like, oh, today I'm a lover of all the world's great religious and contemplative and spiritual and philosophical traditions. But at that time, the religious culture that I was born into wasn't really resonating with me. And when I read this, it was just, whoa. And then I stumbled into some other books. Where I was growing up in the Midwest was not a hotbed for this kind of thing back then. <laughs> more, more West Coast, East Coast, you know, but... Anyway, I was finding my way. And, and then down in Peru, I'm living way up in a remote part of the Andes Mountains in Peru and had a few books. I gravitated towards Tibetan Buddhism, and it had only been about three or four books published at that time, translated and published. I mean, today there's thousands, you know, but back then it was just a few. So I had those, and I was trying to figure out how to practice on my own, how to practice meditation on my own. And then some travelers came up to my place. Every now and then some people would find us. It was very remote. You had to, It took quite an effort to get to where we were. But they showed up with a copy of Rolling Stone magazine from 19, the fall of 1974 that had a huge feature story about the first summer sessions at then Naropa University, which later, oh. Naropa Institute, which later became Naropa University. And they expected a, it was the inaugural summer sessions. It was just the founding summer session of the Institute. And they expected a couple hundred people and they got like 1,500 people to each of two summer sessions, right? And it was this huge spiritual happening. Most of the major spiritual figures in the country later, at least in the contemplative mindfulness meditation world, were there, you know, if they're of that age, if they're old enough, right? I mean, and also all these other iconic people, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, uh, Buckminster Fuller, all, the, all these amazing avant-garde theater people. It was just a huge happening. And, you know, so I'm reading about all this and fascinated, but it was the main thing I saw Chogyam Trungpa, the founder. And I just, you know, it was just like, he found me, I found him. It was just like, I have to go there, Right. And I didn't even know, I knew he was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. I didn't even know he was of, of the very same lineage that I was zeroing in on through these books that I wanted to, you know, connect with. But so I, I committed to getting up there and I did and enrolled in Europa University. And that's where I eventually got my master's degree and what was then called a master's in Buddhist and Western psychology. And it's now called a master's in contemplative psychotherapy, but essentially the same program. So I did that and I still justify myself funding my way through that with part-time smuggling, put myself through graduate school. And I knew I had to untangle as the deeper I got involved in Buddhist training and practice and with that community, I, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance, but I mostly self-medicated around that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spent a good part of the year off doing retreats and intensive practice, very sincerely engaged. And when I was doing that, everything else went in the background. I wasn't involved in other things, but then back out in my life, you know, I'm back in this crazy world of being a part-time drug smuggler and still involved in alcohol and drug use. And, you know, so I had this kind of split life and I knew it had to stop. But before I could untangle all that, I ended up earning my way into a federal prison sentence. Mm. And I was initially sentenced to 30 years with no parole. I pretty much thought my life was over. I was 35. The paper the next day after my sentencing said I'd be 65 before I had any chance of release. My son was nine years old at the time. And once, once the reality of all that hit me, I was just absolutely devastated. I went to a dark night of the soul about what I'd done to my son and, and done to myself for that matter, but mostly what I'd done to my son. And I'd really torched my life and let down my family and my community. And 
I just became radically dedicated, radically focused on extricating any negativity out of my life and taking all the good I've been given by my family and my my spiritual teacher and and try to be of some benefit. And and I didn't know if I'd survive my prison time, really no surety at all that I would survive that. But I wanted to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison. So mm-hmm. that became my monastery time, my ashram time. And I was just, I led this incredibly disciplined life, getting up at 4 a.m. and practicing two, three, four hours of meditation a day, studying three or four hours a day. I worked full-time as a school teacher, helping other prisoners learn to read or earn a GED or study for college classes. I was in the right place at the right time. To, it was a world, any prison is a world of tremendous suffering, but this was the maximum security federal prison hospital. And it was just moving into the height of the AIDS epidemic. So they're bringing the AIDS patients from all over the federal prison system to this place. And plus people are there. It was also a psychiatric facility and it was really kind of a hell realm. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first arrived there and started walking around this big place and started seeing people, blind people being guided down the hallway, people emaciated in wheelchairs, paraplegics, quadriplegics, people doing a Thorazine shuffle down the hall coming out of the psych ward. I mean, I thought I was in a Fellini movie, but I also recognized so much suffering and it completely woke me up out of my, you know, as you can imagine, when I landed there, I was pretty preoccupied. I'd just been given a 30 year no parole sentence and I thought my life's over. So I'm pretty caught up in my own drama, mm-hmm. but you know, the environment there and seeing all this suffering just shocked me out of that. And so I just became dedicated to showing up there and seeing how it could be of service. And a lot of that was the influence of my family. I, despite our, the alcoholism of my family, I came from a really good family with good values. And my spiritual teacher who, you know, just my experience of him all the years I was with him was he was just 24-7 dedicated to benefiting humanity and helping human beings wake up and reducing suffering. And so, you know, I was just compelled to do the same. And so that became a very powerful journey. Eventually, I figured out how to the good time work, and I was fortunate that I was sentenced prior to 1987. There was still a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. So I then, eventually, I, I was in prison months before I figured this out, but eventually I figured, oh, if I stay out of trouble, I'm going to serve 18 and a half, not 30. Wow. Now, and if you get in trouble, they start taking it away from you in chunks, right? You get in trouble in prison. I still felt like forever at that time. I was right. better than 30, but still yeah. felt like forever. That's a long time. And, it took about three years for my appeal to work its way through the process. And they, they knocked off one count, which should have given me a new trial, but it didn't. But anyway, it, it reduced my aggregate sentence from 30 to 25. So then at that point, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. And fortunately, that's what I ended up serving was the, the 14 and a half, 14 inside and six months in a halfway house and on house arrest. So the interesting, the, the unique thing about my background story of going to prison was I came into prison with a lot of skills. I'd already been right. trained as a Buddhist teacher. A meditation teacher. I've been practicing intensely, very deeply for like 10 years, compartmentalizing in my life and not applying the teachings to a whole swath of my life, which is pretty thick-headed and still a lot of addiction stuff going on and substance abuse. But nonetheless, I've been very sincerely practicing and I had a master's degree. I had a lot of training. And so when I got there and then became dedicated to turn my life around and live a life of service in some ways, a very painful place. And I have deep regrets over the impact of my son having not had his father around all that time and and deep regrets around my involvement with drug dealing and the impact that had on people's lives. But apart from that, I have really no regrets around that experience because it became for me the place of transformation and an opportunity to really serve in an extraordinary way that I never would have been able to before. I was able to start the first hospice program uh, along with another prisoner and uh, the support of of a, a prison chaplain and a prison psychologist start the first hospice program in a, in a prison anywhere in the world, as far as we know, back in 1987. 
And then I started an outside organization. And by the time I left prison, there were about 80 prison hospice programs, state and federal, all over the U.S. and completely wow. transformed end of life care in prison, in the place where I was, but also, and that was a huge part of my life for the remaining 11 years of my sentence. I spent all my breaks and a lot of my evenings and weekend time up in the hospital caring for men who were dying. And that was incredibly transformative work for me to put my focus on somebody else's needs rather than my own and to be confronted with my own mortality constantly because Mm. there were men younger than I was who were dying. Most of the men came from other prisons there for medical treatment and some got treatment and left, but some stayed and died there. But there were even healthy men in the general population there that I was part of in that prison who got sick and died there. In fact, we had two hospice volunteers, wonderful hospice volunteers who were healthy and then got sick and ended up becoming hospice patients and died there. And I was very close to both of them. And one of them ended up being my my patient, my hospice patient. So I had no surety that I would survive my time. So it's continual confrontation with mortality, as well as people are dying for all kinds of reasons there. And there was violence and people died of violence there. And mm. so it, it was just a very powerful place for transformation. But I was lucky that I went in with the skills. This radical responsibility model was really born there out of my experience there. But, you know, I want to say that for most people to go to prison, prison is a very destructive experience and people generally come out worse than they went in. Mm. Not all. There are lots of people who transform in prison. But given that we have over two million people in the in our prisons, you know, it's a very small number overall, but still a significant number of people who do find freedom in prison and liberate themselves and transform themselves. But for the vast majority of prisoners, it's a traumatizing, debilitating experience, and they come out often worse than they went in. Right. Well, you were 49 years old when you got out and you were broke and you had a criminal history. So uh, how did you go from Obviously, you did a lot of great work inside. How did you know that you'd be able to translate that to the outside world without fear and and limitation? I didn't, but I knew once I knew how much time I would likely serve if I managed to stay out of trouble. And I was pretty committed to staying out of trouble. It was easy to get in trouble. You could stumble into trouble around every corner in prison. Every minute of the day, there's trouble. And I really credit my mindfulness practice to have the awareness to avoid mm. 99% of that. I stumbled into a couple of situations that could have got buried that where I could have really gotten hurt or hurt somebody else because it was just these kind of confrontations. And once you're in it, you got to, or I could have ended up losing a lot of good time, you know, or, or I could have gotten another sentence and gotten more time. Right. So I, I was both very intentional, but I was also fortunate. But at any rate, once, once I kind of had a sense that, yeah, I knew I'd be almost 50 years old when I got out. Starting a life in debt with a criminal record, a serious criminal record, not just a criminal record, but a serious criminal. I mean, I was not, I never had any violence in my background, but still being sentenced on the so-called kingpin statute as a drug smuggler is considered, you're, you're considered a serious offender, right? And at any rate, I knew I'd have, I really going to have to train myself and hope that that training would translate when I got out. I had some confidence that it would, but I, you know, I just really focus on, I'm going to train myself to be the best person I can be in here and to serve in the best way I can here. And I'm going to trust that that'll, that'll translate to the outside world if I'm ever able to, to get there. The other thing that was really helpful was actually, even when I first got to that prison, I immediately realized not only was it a world of tremendous suffering, but a world of tremendous negativity. And almost all prisoners end up with a huge victim story. Now, society tends to see them as the perpetrators, right? But most prisoners end up feeling victimized. Most people end up in prison have huge victimization in their childhood. They're pretty much programmed to get there, which is not an excuse, but it's just a fact. Mm. 
Right. I mean, right. I did. I started some programs later on the prison. Some intensive programs we did. It's a training I still this very related to radical responsibility called the event, which I still lead today for in the outside community. But I managed to bring that into the prison. We did four of them while I was there. During the last three years I was there, and we were bringing together men of every every racial background, every level of you know crime, criminality, different, very diverse group. We do thirty men in each training, and within the space gets bonded and. And people start revealing their family awards and stuff. Usually about 90% of the men in every training has experienced severe childhood abuse of one kind, mm-hmm. you know, emotional, physical, sexual, or all three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to, so it's, it's amazing. Some of these people are still alive, much less, you know, of course they're in prison. Right. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, you know, when you're getting arrested and, and prosecuted and, and so forth, you're just being buried under a mountain of demonization and shame. That's just the way mm-hmm. the system works. And regardless of what you're arrested for. I mean, I had a good friend while I was in prison on the outside, a lovely woman who was a tenured school teacher in a Denver school system who got arrested because of something with her neighbors and a dog or pet and some of the neighbors about the dog. I don't know, maybe pooped in your, I don't know. And the, the police came and arrested her. You know, it was ridiculous. But anyway, she described what she went through, getting arrested and getting booked and the whole process. And it's this whole shaming ritual. So anybody that's ever been arrested, you know what I'm talking about. And if you go to prison, it's even worse. So what we naturally do is we, to protect ourselves, just to survive kind of, you know, cognitively, psychically, you know, we we armor ourselves up and Mm -hmm. you tend to armor yourself up with anger and bitterness and your own victim story. I got there to prison, you know, you just start meeting people and, and, you know, usual ritual is you meet somebody and, and after lunch, you go out for a walk on the track. Right. And it was a, a big prison yard surrounded by, there were 10 buildings in this complex. And it was a big yard in the middle of big walking track around with a big softball field, in the middle kind of, and walk the track and that person shares their victim. story. you share your victim story, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of the getting to know your ritual. Right. You share each other's victim. You know, my lawyer screwed me over. My fall partner screwed me over. I got, you know, everybody, you know, and I mean, they don't tell their childhood victim story, right? They tell the, the surface victim story of how they got a bum rap, right? And after going through that a couple of times, I didn't want to hear mine anymore, ever. And, <laughs> and I didn't really want to hear other people's, which wasn't that compassionate, but that's just not where I wanted to live. Right. And fortunately, I was really clear. I don't want to come out of prison angry, bitter with a big victim story, but I don't even want to live that way in here. Right. And I knew that if I didn't proactively do something to make it otherwise, I'd end up there. And I also realized I could have focused on all kinds of people that contributed to my journey in, in of incarcerated. You know, basically the way it, prosecution works, you know, any, if anybody's involved in any kind of drug trafficking, dealing or something, they're connected to a lot of people, a lot of whom they don't even know. But, you know, the networks of how things get distributed. And so when they prosecute, they get the designated kingpin is the person who won't testify against anybody. And then they get everybody to testify, you become the kingpin, right? So I did a lot of people's time. A lot of people who were very involved in the same thing I was involved in didn't go to prison or only went to prison for a year or two. And so I did a lot of people's time. And and also when you're prosecuted, the government doesn't, they, they, they don't care about the law. They don't care about any rules. They play hardball and they justify it because they're the good guys, you're the bad guys. And so they just do whatever it takes. So all kinds of prosecutorial misconduct. So I could have focused on all that. I had a huge victim story about how I'd been over prosecuted, which actually I, I was. I, I To this day, I don't feel I was in any way stretched or form a kingpin. I was broke when when I was going to. So, you know, kingpins usually aren't broke. Right, know? right. Yeah. They've got some stash somewhere and I had nothing, right? I've been broke for a while. I've been working selling cars for a year and a half before I turned myself in to support my family. So I could have focused on all that. 
And I, I said, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to focus on any of that. I've got to own 100, 200% responsibility that I got myself into this. And I did, I earned my way there. I mean, I had a huge contribution to it, but I decided to focus solely on how I got myself into this, what I'm going to do to get myself through it and out of it. That's all I'm going to focus on because that's the only place I have any power. Right. And not only that, keep my mind clear and keep me focused on my own personal journey of transformation, but that's really what allowed me to create two national organizations and catalyze two national movements from inside prison, which you're not supposed to be able to do. Right. And if I had asked anybody, could I do this? They said, no, you're crazy. Go back to yourself. Get out of here, you know? Mm -hmm. But I was able to do it because I didn't do it from a place of blaming anybody or demonizing anybody or any kind of us versus them. I did it because I'm here with human beings. My fellow prisoners, the staff, we're all human beings. And if I'm compassionate and professional and consistent, I can find a way to enroll people in doing good things, not in a manipulative way, in a very transparent and honest way. And that led to the national and international prison hospice movement, which again has radically changed end of life care in prison that really impacted medical care altogether. And also led to a huge prison dharma, prison mindfulness, prison meditation movement, which I, I certainly didn't create all by myself, but I was certainly a, a significant catalyst and the organization I started from my prison cell back then, Prison Dharma Network, is a thriving international organization today. All that happened because of radical responsibility. Instead of focusing on who I can blame, or mm. even instead of focusing on blaming myself, focusing on the question, what can I do? Right. What can I do to what's the most creative way I can respond to any circumstance to move things forward for myself and others in a positive, beneficial way? And that's led to, you know, I did get out of prison, as you said, um, just short of my 50th birthday. The IRS had a $300,000 judgment against me, assessed taxes for my illegal gains and, and a criminal record, right? The truth is I got out in the spring of 1999, which is something like, what, 20, 22 going on, 23 years ago now, maybe 23 years this spring. Yeah, I guess it is. And uh, I was a big marker when I was, you know, I was in for 14 and a half. When, when I was out longer than I was in, that was amazing to me. And the, the 14 years since I've been out, went by in a blip compared to the 14 I was oh, in. I <laughs> time moves slow when you're in prison. But at any rate, I think time moves faster as we get older somehow too, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. But I've been out all this time. But I have had, ever since I got out, I have not, had nothing but opportunity to serve and to travel around the world and to teach and, and to guide and to coach and to support people. And, and I really had an amazing life. Ever since I've been through some really tough losses. You know, I lost a couple of partners, lost my spiritual teacher while I was in prison, but I lost two, they, neither one of them were marriages, but they could have been, especially the second one. We were definitely lifelong partners, Denise, but I lost, and, but I'm very grateful. I'm in an amazing marriage today with my wife, Sophie. And, but, you know, it's been an amazing journey. I've had nothing but opportunity ever since. And I, and I really feel it all comes out of the fact that I embrace that concept of shifting away from either blaming others or blaming myself into this context of taking ownership. And what can I do? What can I do to move things forward? So I'm very grateful for the life I have. And, and you know, ultimately, I'm grateful for that period I spent in prison. Again, I really regret the negative impact any right. of my involvements had on my family or others. Or, but I am actually grateful for those experiences because that's, that's who I am today, the result of those experiences. And what I have to give really comes out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wow. You really dove in there for the 14 years and really created a lot of change and transformation, not only within yourself, but within the community. It's really amazing. And I'm, I was wondering, did the, I, I don't know what to call them, but I guess the judges that would be talking about your sentence, were they like, yes, absolutely. You've been, done a great job. And like, there's no question you're leaving here or 
did they kind of let leave you hanging in the balance kind of wondering at the time I knew if I stayed out of trouble, the way it works. I mean, there are some people in some state laws, some state laws, they get sentenced, conditional sentences. But no, I I had a statutory release date. Well, they had two types of good time. One is statutory good time. And I knew how much of that I would get on my sentence if I didn't lose any of it. So that gave me one date. And then they give you another got a good time date. You earn as you go by staying out of trouble and keeping a job in prison. Right. And so I knew if I maxed that out, what my release date would be. And then, so I didn't have to, it, it didn't depend on a judge to release me or a parole board because I was okay. not, el- I was not eligible for parole. If I had been eligible for parole, I could have gone to the parole board after doing a third of my sentence, but that doesn't mean they would have let me out, but they might've, right? I was mm-hmm. concerned, very low risk, even, even the parole assessment of me and my sentencing said I was a low risk, but they ignored that and said, gave me a big sentence. But, but now there's no parole for any federal prisoners. Uh, they got rid of that in 1987, went to determinate sentencing. And, and, and also there's very little good time anymore. Today, I'm, I'm very lucky because after 87, after 1987, if you were sentenced to 30 years, all you can do is you can get 54 days a year by staying out of trouble year as you go. So, you know, 10, that's 540 days. Three times that is like 1,500, 1,600 days, you know, maybe three years. So you're going to, you are, you're going to serve 27 years on 30. And mm-hmm. the only way out of that is a presidential pardon. Right. You know, that's not going to happen if you're not extremely wealthy or politically connected. Right. So, you know, and also after I've been there for a while, I mean, when I arrived there, people were looking, I was like big man because all the papers. Right. And I was like big man on campus, you know, be always big sentence. I mean, I was like, hang with us. I, know, I think I'll find my own way here. You know, I, mm-hmm. I had no sense of being a celebrity because of my sentence. You know, I was just freaked out that I had the sentence. But within a couple of years, my sentence was nothing. There were young men coming into prison with 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Young men in their 20s being sentenced to that for drug cases, right? Nonviolent drug cases, even. And these huge sentences. And now there was no more, there was no more parole and very little good time. So, you know, you sentence some man in their 20s to 50 years, he knows he's going to serve, he's got nothing to lose. That's why prisons are becoming much more dangerous because for the prisoners and the staff, because you got all these people locked up who got nothing to lose, Mm -hmm. no way out, nothing to lose. Right. Right? How did you get them to start meditating? Because I mean, a lot of people, when they're that angry, they don't want to sit down and meditate. How did you even cross that bridge? Well, I didn't get anybody to meditate, but it was like, you know, I, I, I knew also another, just an insight I had, the minute I got locked up was, that if I'm going to be able to do anything positive here, it's going to come out of my practice, right? It's not going to be about talking to you. It's going to come out of my practice. So I was a really dedicated practitioner. I led a very disciplined life. You know, I, I got in shape, took good care of myself, but I, I was work. I was always busy. I was working, studying, meditating, doing the hospice work, uh, leading a meditation group in the prison chapel, very involved in the 12-step work. I was always busy. My time was very scheduled. I had a very disciplined life, which keeps you out of a lot of the trouble in prison. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, people respect that. They're attracted. Not everybody, but people are attracted. And if people recognize you, what, what's going on with you? You see me? And then people would see me sometimes in meditation up on a unit somewhere. And, you know, I would, I, I worked in the education department. So I had the ability to go around to various, uh, various areas of the prison, put up posters for other educational programs because part of my job. So I could put up posters about our meditation group in the in a chapel that met twice a week that I started. But basically, people came by attraction. I didn't talk anybody into it, right? It doesn't work anyway. Right. But, you know, people, a lot of times people came to the group just to get out of the chaos of the prison. 
because for a couple hours, it could be in a chapel, which was a more of a, a quieter controlled space. Mm. And it was just a relief to be there rather than back in the insanity of the rest of the prison, right? Mm. A lot of men went very deep during it. I introduced several thousand men to meditation. It was a male prison, several thousand men. And I still know some of them today. And uh, some of them went on to become very serious practitioners. Yeah. Wow. When you were talking, it just occurred to me that you probably didn't feel safe all the time to meditate because when you meditate, you have to let go. You have to close, you know, a lot of times you close your eyes, just even having to overcome that hurdle of physically feeling safe. Cause then we go inward and then we feel unsafe because a lot of other stuff comes up, but that's a, a big thing to overcome. Yeah. You never really feel physically safe in prison. Yeah. Uh, wow. There's the specter of violence is just around you all the time. Wow. Yeah. You sleep very lightly. You know, in, in where I was, we didn't have locks on our doors. I, mean, I started off in big dorms, right? I was on a, on a floor that had previously been a, a designed as a medical floor for 50 patients. We had 185 men on there, just crammed in every nook and cranny. Big, big dorms with bunk beds and then smaller dorms, smaller dorms. And, you know, I eventually, in about two and a half years, by staying out of trouble through seniority, you get better and better room, right? If you lose, you know, if you get in trouble, you start over again, top bunk, big dorm, right? But anyway, I finally, there were only a few single rooms on the place. And I, I finally got one in about two and a half years, which gave me a lot more privacy for my meditation practice. And I managed to keep it the rest of that time. Fortunately, I almost lost it once to some stupid thing. But right outside my door, which is absolute chaos in the evenings and bedlam and chaos, you know, but nonetheless, I was very grateful that I came into space to study and practice in ways I wouldn't have been able to. But there's no lock on that door. And, you know, it, you, if you get in a beef with somebody in prison, the smallest guy in the place, can take a padlock, your locker, you have a locker, it's got, you can take a padlock, wrap it in a sock and come in, you know, boom, you're dead. And so when you're sleeping, somebody can open your door. So you sleep lightly. And I still, to this day, my wife kind of touches me or rolls over. And, you know, I have a big startle response. This is the impact these things have on you. For the first 20 years, I was out. Every night of my life, vivid prison dreams. Mm. And dreams about I'm supposed to be out of prison, but I'm still not getting out. They're not letting me out. Or I'm out, but I'm getting busted again. And now I'm going to go back forever. And I know I, part of my mind knows I don't do this anymore, but here I'm getting busted. What's going on? And there's the drugs and I'm going to go back and it's going to like three strikes you're out or something. I'll never get out again. And every night I go to sleep knowing I'm going to have these full technicolor and sometimes violent and scary prison dreams. And that's just started to diminish in the last couple of years. But I still have my head some last night but it's not quite as full on as it used to be. So that stuff, it just gets into your nervous system, you know? Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So how yeah. did you transform your relationship with your son? Like what happened after you came out of prison? Fortunately, I was very close to him when he was really little, although I, I was not a great dad at all because I've made all kinds of selfish decisions to put his, his life at risk and his mother's life at risk. And obviously I wasn't prioritizing my role as father, but nonetheless, we, we did have an early experience of being close when I got out, he went, when I got in, he, he lived in South America. His mother was from Peru. So he went, they went back there. He lived there and went to most of the latter part of middle school and high school and everything down there. And then he, he went out by around, shortly before I got out, he came back and to the States. So we were always very close. We had an up and down relationship. He had a lot of semi-unconscious, maybe some conscious pay, pay dad back stuff going on, you know, and and he very creative, artistic, and and work really hard. And he'd get his life really going, and then it would crash. And I'd pick up the piece. I, he'd want me to pick up the pieces and get him on his feet again. But then we resent it, you know. 
there are a lot of ups and downs, but it, despite all that kind of father son, so we were very close and kept, and kept getting close and we loved each other deeply. And very sadly, I lost my son two years ago. Oh, uh, sorry yeah. to that. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time down in Peru. This is after I got out. He went back. He'd been back and forth his whole life. And even since I got out of prison, he's been back and forth. And he, he was down there. He was thinking about trying to open up a restaurant down there. And he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. and got beaten, but beaten nearly to death in Cusco, Peru, in a popular tourist spot nightclub at one night. And I was left for dead. And fortunately, some friends found him, got him to a clinic. I got down there the next day and he was in a coma for 10 days. And I came out of that with a frontal lobe head injury and was just kind of crazy for the next nine months. I, I did smuggling back to the States and try, it, it was a long journey. At the same time, my then partner Denise was on hospice care. So it was a crazy, crazy time of my life. He did recover, thank goodness. But about six years later, he started having seizures because of the scar tissue in his frontal lobes. Mm. And so he had to get on seizure medication and he was on and off that because he didn't like it. And some point he decided to move back to Peru because even on his medication, if he got stressed out, he was in a restaurant industry and a chef and a general manager and executive chef and very high stress industry. And so he decided to move back to Peru because he, he would get stressed out and have seizures even on the medication. He decided to move back to Peru. He thought it'd be, and I think it was better ultimately there, but not last year, but the year before last. He had built a compound. I, I purchased some land down there after prison from money I earned after prison, legal money helped him buy a piece of land down there. And he built a house for his mom initially and then built another small house. And, and so he kind of lived across this courtyard from his mom and she hadn't heard from him. He kind of woke up, tended to wake up late, but she hadn't heard from him. She went looking for him and she found him and she wasn't, she got me on the phone right away. We we're trying to figure out what was, but he was already gone. Mm. And we think he probably woke up. He often woke up early in the morning with seizures and seizures don't usually kill you, but they can trigger a respiratory event or a heart attack or something. And so we don't know if COVID was involved. The, the authorities insisted on him being buried right away because of COVID and because of what was going on. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I think it was probably mostly related to seizures, to the epilepsy. And, but it was absolutely heartbreaking, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, but, but we were very close. I mean, I talked to him, you know, and, and he was, I don't think he knew it was coming because I talked to him about just about five days before. And he was, we had a great conversation. He was full of plans and ideas. And I know close friends of his who were on the phone with him and online with him the night before he died, the mm. night before the morning his mother was coming. And he was also been posting a lot of stuff on social media that even very positive stuff. He had a lot of vision. He was very positive. And, and so I don't think he knew it was coming. Mm. And but yeah, it's a really tragic loss for his mom and I. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you think that everything does happen for a reason that the, the, the path that you were on was the path that you were always supposed to be on? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's something to those kind of things, but I also, I, I don't think we're fated to something. Some people have the idea if there are multiple lifetimes and we do keep coming back, you know, and I tend to think that makes more sense than a lot of other things. There's actually quite a lot of evidence to that, mm -hmm. but we don't know for sure what happens when we die. And some people have these ideas that we actually choose our birth, either consciously or unconsciously, because that's the learning that we need. Those are the circumstances where, we, you know, but how it all goes, I think there's a lot of choice involved in it, right? Right, right. So I, I think our destiny is actually created by the choices we make, how we respond to the circumstances of our life. Mm -hmm. And so what, that that was the life I was meant to lead. I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily, but I, 
I, I think I've been in in some ways on, on a path of transformation, probably, I suspect for lifetimes. And mm-hmm. and these were the particular circumstances of this life. But that no in no way to me justifies anything. Or, you know, if I could turn a clock back and have not gone to prison and been there for my son all that time to make his life better. Fortunately, he stayed out of trouble. I mean, a lot of people that go you have a parent prison end up in prison themselves. And fortunately, mm-hmm. he managed to avoid that. Today, I'm, I'm very grateful for the time that I had with him. Uh, he was a beautiful soul, really magical, loving, artistic person. And some people, time on the planet is shorter. And mm-hmm. whether that's their destiny of that life or whether it's, I, I don't know, I, but I don't think it's helpful to admire myself and self-blame, but I believe ownership is is really important. Mm-hmm. And I own the fact that that my choices impacted his life and mm-hmm. made his life more difficult. And that may have contributed to what ultimately happened to him and even his death. So I definitely own that, but I'm not blaming myself for it. We all have our own karma, our own lives and, and destiny. And he made a lot of choices himself as well. In some ways, none of us are guilty. None of us are innocent. We're all innocent. We're all guilty. You know, you can't separate yourself out from the whole thing. We're all in this together. Right. right. And, and I certainly want to own my contributions, good and bad, better, or worse in, in the whole thing. Right. But I, I, the most important thing is, however we got where we are, to recognize that at least in part, it's had to do with choices we've made, either consciously or unconsciously. But right. most importantly, what can, what's going to happen coming going forward is going to be completely based on the choices we're making. Mm-hmm. We can't control the world, but we have a huge influence over our own destiny. And it really comes down to the choices we're making. And we have to earn choice because we're so conditioned and so programmed that you really have to become conscious to really live a choice and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, train your mind and develop mindfulness and awareness and the ability to be conscious and actually recognize our choice points and make choice. Otherwise, we're just going to be driven along by our childhood conditioning and reaction to the circumstances around us. We might think we're kind of free thinking, autonomous human beings walking around making free thinking, autonomous decisions all day, but it's really not like that. We're really very programmed, but we don't have to be determined by our program. We can learn to get conscious and step out of it. Right. I love it. That's why I wanted to interview you because when you take radical responsibility, you can design your life. You, I like how you say this choice, choice point because we, you could have gone to prison, like you said, and, and stayed focused on your victim story, or you could make the best of what you had and look towards the future rather than the past. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I've loved talking to you. Can you tell us where everybody can find out more about you? Sure. My basic website, fleetmall.com, which is available right now, although we're going to relaunch a whole new site. I hope any day now, maybe next week. Be the same URL, fleetmall.com. And you can get to my courses there. You can go to the course tab, but that'll take you to another website for Heart Mind Institute, mm-hmm. which is where I offer my online courses and have an online community. And we do big summits. We have a big summit going on now with 64,000 people in it called the best year of your life, which we do every January to help people relaunch their lives. Great. And today is day 10 of the summit. We have another big summit coming up in late March, early April called the Global Resilience Summit. That's heartmind.co, not .com, but just .co, heartmind.co. But you can find your way there through fleetmall.com as well. If people are interested in the prison work, it's prisonmindfulness.org, prisonmindfulness.org. Or the work we do with first responders and public safety professionals is mindfulpublicsafety.org. Yeah, that's, that's probably enough to get people. Oh, if people want radicalresponsibilitybook.com, you can download a free chapter from the book there. And you can also read all the accolades from other best-selling authors and so forth who were so kind to write nice accolades for the book. 
if you want to order from Amazon or any books or a bunch of however you particularly, you can do it all from right that site, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. And, and I wish everyone out there in your audience the very, very best with their lives. Oh, thank you. Content provided by Amy Stark and or her guests on the Stark Transformation Show website or other platforms, including text, images, audio, or other formats, are created for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. Amy Stark is not a doctor or a therapist.